Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Lucas and Vincent were not in the mainstream of gay life. I was saving body parts, such as uh, skulls. Doesn't it bother you that he's a fag? You have done me a great service. Now I must service you. The drugs were, were always a, a cry for attention, for somebody to pay attention to me before I, you know, kill somebody. <laughs> You can imagine what it smells like if you go into a closed room. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Buckle up, sodomites, and welcome to the Sinister Sissies podcast. Your guide to true crime, horror, and everything man-on-man and macabre. I'm Jared, your master of depravity, staring at the beautiful face of my filthy little slave, oh. Sam Hamilton. For the very last time. My eyes are actually welling up. I feel sad. (laughs) I can't believe it's over. This is our last episode, everyone. Don't cry because it's over. I'll tell myself. He is welling up. Smile because it happens. (laughs) Be a greeting card. Uh, It's sad. We've been doing this. Well, Jerry's been doing this for four seasons. Yeah, three years, four seasons. We've been doing it for, what, two years? Well, no, it's edging towards three. We started doing it like January twenty. 20 and now it's almost november 2020 we got through a pandemic doing this podcast shit. yeah it's 2022 okay so it's been anyway it's been years it's We've been, been old time. yeah <laughs> we are i was only 27 when this began oh you were a youthful, <laughs> a youthful young boy now i'm even more used up in the gay world than i was back <laughs> yeah, then yeah gay death has taken hold at 30 yes well you it used to be 25 now daddy culture's in so it's okay to be old as long as you're muscly so um, I need to get on some steroids, stat. That's true. It's Fuck. True. Um, so this is our very last episode. Um, the topic for the episode is basically just something for us to rant about, I think. Well, well it was for Jared to intentionally rant about. <laughs> and I will say I took some issue with this show. Well, it's the kidding. fact that I feel like it's great because it shows that this podcast has converted Sam into being much more critical, I think. I don't know, critical. I'm just, I don't know if the people in this documentary series 
are qualified to be critical. They are not. They are not. Uh, so we're talking about Queer for Fear, which is an exclusive documentary series on Shudder, created by Brian Fuller of Hannibal TV series. Yeah. What else has he done? He did Pushing Daisies. People love that show. Okay, yeah. Um, and it is ostensibly meant to be a four-part series looking at uh, LGBT, LGBTQ themes the first time I've ever said that on the podcast, uh, in horror. Uh, whether or not it achieves that, I reckon there is a huge question mark. You could um, definitely play a drinking game, but you would be dead in about five minutes every time the word queer is said. Oh, yeah, they love the word queer. Horror is interwoven with queerness. Queer people are considered outside society. And horror is outside of society. The werewolf is the perfect allegory for coming out of the closet. Dracula's modus operandi appears to be to enslave women and torture men with a kind of psychosexual obsession. So many of us can relate to being the monster in the room. There's a power in being a monster. You begin with queer artists taking the spaces we're allowed to have and slipping what we can say into those spaces. We've been a part of the genre of art since the beginning. Come here. They've done a great job at assembling anyone who is a relevant entertainer right now who is queer. Relevant with question, you know. Well, I knew almost everyone appearing, okay? So I'm going to say... A lot of TV but, but, actors. But are they qualified to be... I mean, I guess... I don't know, I guess, I think the problem is the show is presenting it as being a very cerebral take on horror Which films. it is not. And I'm, I, we're going to talk about and some of the, the very glaring historical inaccuracies in this, this documentary and, series. And, and I think that if they had just presented it as like a more of a like sitting on the couch, like what do you think? Like an MTV, you know, yes. I, I think because it's presented as like almost like an academic sort of dissection. Yeah. But then you have just like random, like you have like Alaska fun to fuck and other people. You have... Who, this is someone that I don't even know if you would know who it is. You have Bruce Valanche. Bruce Valanche is known for being, I think, the middle square in Hollywood Squares, which was a popular show in the mid-1990s. Well, look, they've got contemporary and uh, somewhat <laughs> contemporary people. I Okay. So I think there's something nice about ending Sinister Sissies talking about this documentary series because it, it's demonstrating... Um, the very way of approaching horror that I hated, which is the reason that I started the podcast, right? So um, a lot of what you see in this documentary series is people looking at horror history or, or movies and there's no actual like gay sex or trans stuff happening on screen at all. What they're doing is they're kind of reading in queer themes and like there's there's reasons for that there's like a whole academic specialty which now has influenced popular culture um but i'm really really against this idea of settling for these this read into queer theme and the example that i was going to give to kind of indicate the thing that i really don't like um is you know how like this is about like five years ago now you know how like everyone was talking about how 
Disney villains are queer coded. Yeah, isn't Scar gay? Yes. Yeah, so, so shit like gay. So, so that is influenced by this way of thinking about media and media criticism. That um, you know, there's this hetero patriarchal culture that is hiding the hidden meaning, this hidden queer meaning in popular media. And so that queer coded villains thing came about because of that. There's, there's one aspect of that that I think is accurate. So like Ursula in Little Mermaid was based off of divine. So that's a clear, like that, that's not a queer coded anything. That's like a literal uh, connection. But the common thing about queer coded villains that we hear about, like Scar and Jafar, what they do is they say, well, their animator was a gay man. So clearly um, this must be a representation of homosexuality or it must represent certain themes and we can read that into it. Even though, I'm going to get his name, the animator of Jafar and Scar, Andreas Deja, has said on many, many occasions, no, what the fuck are you talking about? This is really offensive that you think I can only make gay characters. Um, but there is this, this acceptance that, no, no, it's perfectly fine because we can read this in. We can project our understanding of what it means to be gay or trans in the 21st century back into old media. Which is kind of problematic in itself, really, because it's kind of associating perceived femininity from male-presenting characters or identifying characters as being... making them... It's an association with homosexuality. People can be... Like, you're watching... Children's children's entertainment is often over the top because the point needs to be very clear so the child will understand what is being sort of presented and you you depict the villain as eccentric and that is like that through the history of storytelling you make your villain eccentric you make him like that there's the people talk about like in the history of um literature and stuff they talk about like the trickster archetype that's what that is like that is not that is not anything that needs you to read anything into it um and what i can what it leads to is some really shitty cultural takes uh, which I just threw out this fucking documentary well, series. Well, I think a lot of the series is is reaching, and there is kind of that one devil's advocate um, interviewee. That I can't remember which, what his name is now, but he was like, "What were they talking about again?" I think they were talking about the Universal horror films, and it was yeah. like, you know, was this intended to be gay? I don't know. But oh, I have that, a lot on that. Can yeah. that be like a reading of this? Sure, but like, is it the intention? And I think that, like, obviously, as queer people, I'm saying the Q word. We are outside of society. We are, you know, deviating from cultural norms, etc. But that doesn't. Does that mean that in every film where a character deviates from a cultural norm, that it's meant to be like a, there's meant to be queer subtext? I'm not sure. And this film is definitely reaching at times. And by film, I mean documentary series. You know what I'm saying? So, like, well, I don't know. Are we outside of society now? I think to an extent. I think we're like kind of like you can be like an accessible gay where you don't talk about like at work, for example, if I was like, oh my God, I went to like a bareback breeding orgy last week. Yeah. People would be like, what the, f- are you okay? Like are you on dry? I don't know. People, yeah, that's not acceptable. That's, sure. that's putting you outside. But if you're like, I'm, you know, if you're like, I'm gay and I like men, that's fine. But yeah. like there are cultural aspects to the gay com- and queer communities that are shocking to, like, outsiders and that people wouldn't even know exists. So. Sure. I mean, in terms of, yeah, certain kinds of sexual behavior, totally agree. 
But I also think that like that particular way of, of, of viewing ourselves currently, that idea that like to like come out and all that sort of stuff, that's something that you can only really use as a model to understand very recent media because that people would have that experience. Mm. One of the issues that this documentary does is that it tries to take a really contemporary experience and project it it backwards. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. So, so like, uh, there's a really horrible bit. I think it's Emily St. James, who is a uh, media critic. She's talking about The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And she's, she makes this really just horribly inaccurate claim that The Picture of Dorian Gray is about what it's like being in the closet. And, like, the, there are so many reasons why that makes no sense. Like, one... Oscar Wilde would not have viewed himself as like a gay man that he needed to disclose to the world. He described his tendency to fuck rent boys as a form of sexual madness that he needed to like discharge occasionally. It wasn't like a identity or a sense of self for him. Um, And so it clearly, that's not going to be the themes of the picture of Dorian Gray. Picture of Dorian Gray has like homoerotic themes to it. Like the whole thing is about a really beautiful man. <laughs> I mean, I get. I think the issue with a lot of this documentary and the reads that a lot of the participants are having on certain films is that they are kind of like dissecting the films, but they're kind of what they're saying is kind of like they're presenting it as fact. Yeah. When it's opinion based, but everyone's saying it with such certainty that it's they're so confident. When they clearly don't understand the subject matter. And it's infuriating. And why aren't there, like, film scholars being interviewed? I think that... Well, there are, like... This is the other problem, right? There are three or four really good film scholars that... Or at least people in the industry that have really relevant things to say. Yeah. But overall, I'd say there are about 25 to 30 participants... And, and they're, like, think of the amount of times that Alaska Thunderfuck yeah. speaks versus one of those academics. Like, she does, the, like, quippy lines, and that's included much, much, much more. Yes. I, I At least twice, it was, like, Mary Shelley was, like, the original guff girl or like, like, something no, like that. Said, no, okay, so th- that also... Say, let's go to episode one. Episode one is all about uh, Mary Shelley, Oscar Wilde, and Bram Stoker. Alaska Thunderfuck uh, makes this claim that she's like, so there's all this stuff about, they talk about Mary Shelley being a feminist, which is not that inaccurate. Her mother was an, like, an incredibly famous second wave feminist, but Mary Shelley rebelled against her parents' views a little bit. Like the whole purpose of Frankenstein is not a gay allegory. It's an allegory about science and industrial progress and how that can get out of control and create kind of, um, you know, trying to control nature can create disastrous results. Mm. Um, so in many ways she was kind of rebelling against some of the progressive views of his, her parents. Cause she was a really nuanced person, but like there's, there's a really awful fucking line. This is from Tawny Cypress, who's an actress on yellow jackets um, calls, calls Mary Shelley a queer woman, asterisks on that for historical accuracy, and then says but she was one of she... the original hags. Well, Did... isn't that because it's speculated that her husband was into men? Yeah, this is fucking Percy Shelley. The, uh, Percy Shelley was meant to be into Lord Byron, and the basis for that is that he wrote a very um, uh, loving letter to Lord Byron, and this is, the, this is the entire thread that they use. They use it for Bram Stoker as well. They look at what was quite normal friendship between men 
at that time where you would express love and affection and they're doing like the homophobic thing of being like, isn't that really fucking gay? Like, isn't there, there is literally, so Bram Stoker, I don't know much about, but I know that Percy Shelley and Law Byron, that is an entire fabrication. There is no evidence to suggest, suggest that they were, um, kind of free willing, free, uh, wheelie sexual people. Like the, the doctrine of free love, um, comes from that romanticist movement of which Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley were part of, and they like fuck other people. But yeah, there's no indications that they actually had sexual relationships with someone of the same sex at all. Mm-hmm. But everyone makes that claim like several times in this documentary. Yeah, I always thought Mary Shelley was, you know, was into women. Or is, she, it, is it all speculation? It's it's based on letters that she wrote to a female friend. Okay, and that's all we have. And so this, I don't know, this, this really, I don't know, even the idea of just calling Mary Shelley a queer woman to me seems really, really out of place. Like, like queer is meant to have that association of like, um, you know, transcending gender roles or transcending sexual boundaries or things like that. And look, yeah, she believed in free love for her time, but she was very much a woman of her time. Um... She would not have, like, if you transported her today, she would not be, like, out in the clubs, gay clubbing. (laughs) She was kind of conservative in many ways. Like, I, like, she didn't believe in radical revolution. She was in, she was in favor of kind of bourgeois reform for her day. It just, I don't know. That that first bit, that was the first bit that kind of triggered me in this fucking documentary. I was watching it, trying to imagine Jared's reactions, <laughs> which I found almost as entertaining as the actual documentary, so... So, like, okay, I'm going to keep ranting. This is the first episode is the worst one, and then I can, like, defer to you. But okay, okay, so, so then they move on to Oscar Wilde. They already described it, like, the weird projections backwards of trying to make Oscar Wilde's life um, exactly like theirs. But they perpetuate all of the fucking classic... Uh, myths and misconstruings of the Oscar Wilde trial, which so many people get wrong in popular culture. I don't know if you know this. Like, okay, wait, wait, maybe I'll test this. If you were to describe Oscar Wilde's um, trial and conviction, what do you think happened? According this is not meant to make you look bad because I think you've just absorbed what the popular narrative is. According to this documentary, it was about him being gay. Yeah, right? <laughs> Like, and, and that they, that they, you know, arrested him for being gay. Um, and then he was thrown in prison for many, many years. And then he, he died in prison. Right. Like that's the kind of narrative. Mm. Um, the actual narrative, much, much more complicated. Oscar Wilde is much more of a complicated, um, figure. Wilde's lover had a father who wasn't happy that his son was fucking Oscar Wilde. And so his father wrote a letter and on that letter called him a proposed sodomite or something like that in the letter. Oscar Wilde then sued that father in libel. He took that father to court and then in that courtroom, the father, Oscar Wilde was working under the assumption that all of the rent boys that he fucked were actually on his side and wouldn't self-incriminate themselves. But they were all very happy to, because, you know, I, I don't like when people do this either, but, like, I'm sure 30-something Oscar Wilde fucking 16-year-old rent boys probably wasn't the most, like, mutually... Wilde always had in his head that it was this, like, ancient Greek tutelage that was happening. I don't think that 
the Rent Boys viewed it that way because yeah. they came into the courtroom on this libel case and they all testified, yes, Oscar Wilde made me do this. Oscar Wilde made me do this. Um, and then he lost that libel suit and then following that libel suit, that's when he went on trial for a criminal charge. The first case he won, he was found not guilty. Um, but then um, he, he had a period of time in which he could leave the country. Um, he didn't have enough money to leave the country. In the uh, documentary, they make this claim that he stood his ground and was going to be an openly proud gay man. No, if he had the money to leave, he would have fucking done it. And then they had a second trial. And then he ended up being convicted, not for a sodomy offense, but for a gross indecency offense. So what you're saying is the documentary series took a few liberties uh, to favor their narrative. Because I think that they wanted they wanted to do the thing where Oscar Wilde is this very simple gay hero, this this you know guy persecuted post persecuted for his sexuality who fought it and stood up to everything. When in reality, like he was a complex person, probably wasn't very nice to these red boys. Uh, was the very reason that the police. <laughs> were drawn to his attention in the first place because he was very concerned with like public image. Like that was a very Oscar Wilde thing. It's like his, his image was like everything. Um, and, and that's how that proceeding followed. But like that story is too nuanced, I think for what these people in the documentary actually want to convey. Anyway, that's my main two rants that I needed to get out. Well, I've let you get them out, Jared. I, <laughs> I can't pretend to be an expert on the Oscar Wilde trial. Yeah. But I can definitely tell that a lot of things that are said in this series are skewed to, like, fit a certain narrative. And a lot of them are very speculative. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just kind of... It's really cool to see all of these queer icons and up-and-coming stars, etc. in this How documentary. They, why is all of the cast of Yellow Jackets in it? Well, two of the women in Yellow Jackets like, play queer characters. I think they're, they're also like lesbian or bisexual in real life. Oh, yeah, Tawny Cypress, I looked up, and has been married to men for the last yeah, 30 mean years. She's I not know. Queer. Yeah, we're not supposed to say that. Blah, blah, blah. Um. But yeah, yellow, they obviously like Yellow Jackets. So, like, we did contemporary, we did it now. Oh, I like the, I think the reason the first episode pissed me off so much is because that was. Um, well, because that's not even... The film directors aren't necessarily experts in that topic. Like, I mean, some of them have adapted... Uh, like, someone had adapted Dracula when they were talking about Bram Stoker and things like that. But, like, why would we expect these media figures to be the main experts for, like, titans of literature? Yeah, well, I'm just going to go back to my criticism that I feel like it's presented like they're experts and they're really just people like us who are... Yeah. You know, like, I just think it was it's, ta- it's taking itself really seriously. Yeah. And it feels like a year 11 media class. Yes, people are, absolutely. People, people yeah. are finding meaning and deciding people it's People are fact. having a go. The thing is, you can theorize about these films, and a lot of the theories probably have some truths in them, but people are saying it like it's, this is what the director was thinking. So it's like at the time, you couldn't even openly talk about homosexuality, so we don't know what the directors were thinking. No, but like you, the, there is historical record, like as in that that, that idea of the, the Oscar, like... The idea that Oscar Wilde wouldn't have been overly troubled that he couldn't come out to his wife is a historical fact. Like, you can't project that modern anxiety back on someone at that time. Yes, well, that's true. I mean, at that time, no one could have come out, really. So, like, so. it's not... So, you, so this is what, what is so infuriating, that, like, people feel very confident to then project that onto 
things that they've made, hmm. which is very, very odd. I don't know very much about Bram Stoker, so I don't know that bit about Bram Stoker, whether or not that I mean, accurate is. I'll say in Bram Stoker's writing, you can there's obviously an affection for the male form, but then once again, it doesn't mean that he was secretly gay. Yeah. It could just mean... And sometimes as well, when you're writing something, like I, as a um, low-scale writer, <coughs> I will write things for like the audience, from the perspective of the audience that I'm trying to capture as well. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that I like think or agree with what I'm writing all the time. I just mean that like someone's like, I want this written for like a 14 year old girl. So I'm going to try go from that perspective. And there's maybe he was trying to in the, I don't know. I think when you capture something erotic, you can still find like, I could write like about a woman with like beautiful mounds of breasts or something. And I'm just like, trying <laughs> that was to, the least convincing. That was not sexy. <laughs> but you know, you, I could write an erotic story. Beautiful about mounds. A, I could write a story about a woman and describe it. She's attractive. Yeah. Which is basically what he's done with Dracula. Because the whole point of the character is meant to be that it has this allure to the other characters. So of course you need to, yeah. you need to convey that to the reader. So just saying that he's like a hot man doesn't necessarily mean in a more articulate way, but saying that someone's beautiful, and as a man, doesn't necessarily mean that you're like, I like men. Well, like, the thing is, like, that anxiety of men describing the beauty of other men or men um, not expressing their affection for other men is a modern anxiety. Like, as in... (laughs) We the gays kind of ruined it a little bit because like if you if you literally had no register for the threat of homosexuality in your head, you could like so that I think with Bram Stoker they also pinpointed like a letter to a friend as being indicative of him being gay, but like again you you could say that like oh, no it was a letter to Walt Whitman Walt Whitman did fuck men, but um the. The idea of just expressing these genuine emotions between straight men, what we would call straight men, was common. Hmm. Um, and it just, yeah, it just seems really simplistic to then just be like, you know, gay. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I guess Dracula and Vampire, like films and literature in general are, I guess, they do have like homoerotic under and occasionally overtones. They, I mean, they do have sexual, uh, yes. But I think, I think it's because, yeah, like, I was just to say that, it's because there's something very sexual about the whole like bloodletting and exchanging of like fluids. Yeah. And then often then that does tie into like homosexuality, usually lesbianism in vampire films. Yeah. Because it's kind of like forbidden, but like sexy, but wrong, but like right, <laughs> you know. And so, I mean... You can definitely make some links between vampirism and homosexuality, but is that just the way that the genre evolved? Is it necessarily what Bram Stoker was going for? I think in episode three, they talk about it a little bit. Um, But like, so there is a certain point in which everything becomes kind of self-awarely homoerotic. So like, actually, no, they don't talk about her, which is fucking weird. Like Anne Rice has deliberately wrote the Vampire Chronicles to be homoerotic. Like, that was her intention from the start. Like, you can't, you never deny that that was the purpose that she was trying to do. Um, but also, the, those books are contemporary ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know. Well, that, that's what I mean, though. Like, are we maybe slightly projecting backwards in that, like, at this stage, vampirism has been so homoeroticized mm. that when we then look back, that, we're, that we can't help but view those things in that way? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because this documentary also shows that clip from Hexan 
where everyone's sniffing the demon's like butthole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, see, we've always had sexual taboos <laughs> in horror films. And it's like, we don't know if that was just like for laughs or if like... The, Perver- I don't know. Like perversion has yeah. always been a thing. Yeah, I don't know if it was necessarily like this is taboo and everyone's like sniffing his butthole. I don't know, you know. I think sometimes like what you said, we have attached contemporary meanings to things. In the past. That and have, that's a bad way of interpreting media. cliches have evolved from all these films. And the yeah. associations have evolved from these films. That These films are like the, the OGs. So I don't know if, like, they were intended originally. Like, the self-awareness hadn't really come yet. Although it's interesting, if they talk about James Whale. Well, I was going to say, episode two covers James and Whale. you really like James Whale, so you're going to be really pissed off here, aren't you? Oh, well, yeah, okay. What, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say, it talked about how he was quite self-aware very early on. Like, his films demonstrated a self-awareness of, like, horror tropes and the yeah, absurdity was... of these situations. So he was... Um, so the... the... I think that they they misinterpret him in a number of ways, some in like quite shocking ways. One, um, so James Whale, um, he is when you think of the Universal monsters, you think of James Whale. James Whale was a filmmaker responsible for Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and there's a fourth one that I always forget the name the of. The Old Dark House. Yes. So those kind of four um, huge horror films. Um, the documentary series makes the the common mistake of thinking that James Whale was in some way attracted to the horror genre, and he absolutely wasn't. So, like, he uh, was essentially just like a like a workhorse for for Hollywood. He didn't want to do for, so. There's a point of the documentary, and they said, "Well, of course, when he finally went into filmmaking, he chose to do Frankenstein." James Whale did not choose to do Frankenstein. A studio said, "Oh, we have this. Do this." Um, cause he was just a workhorse and like, he had this very, very distinct style. He was very into German expressionism and he brought that over to the United States. And that's who we have like that whole, literally the, the classic horror media look that like Gothic mm. type of horror media look that is all because of James Whale. Um, and James Whale was an openly gay man. And I say that in the Biggest, like people are often shocked by this idea. In the 1930s, he was everyone knew that he was gay. Yeah, he openly lived with his partner. He was known as kind of being a really queeny gay man. Um, what I think they get wrong in the documentary is they tend to view that as like a really tortured experience, which it apparently was wasn't. Um, and I know people struggle to think about things this way, um, but there's a there's a um, autobiography. I'm James Whale by a guy named James Curtis. It's called Gods and Monsters. And it comes from interviews that uh, James Curtis did with James Whale's life partner, whose name I cannot remember. Um, But so this is like really first-hand details. And it describes the fact that in 1930s Hollywood, in this weird cultural enclave, nobody cared. Like, he, he literally could live as an openly gay man. He was man. in these films and was widely praised. Um, what they do in this documentary, which I think is actually, like, very, very offensive, is that they read into him choosing, look, well, him being allocated these horror films and say, well, clearly these are subtexts for being gay. And I have, wait, I have one particularly uh, idiotic... Uh, interpretation of this. This is from the director, Andrew Fleming. He says, this is in relation to Frankenstein's monster. He's a monster. And you know, 
just on the most basic level, gay people are called monsters. That is the level of fucking criticism that he's dealing with. Um, according to James Curtis, the autobiography of James Whale, the monsters depicted in the Universal Monsters films were never meant to represent uh, tortured homosexuality. And of course, none of that would make sense because James Whale was not a tortured homosexual. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this is another case of people attaching their own meanings to... I mean, I did almost laugh when they were talking about The Bride of Frankenstein and they're like... And Heaven Matarazzo, who's like a lesbian, was like... I was like, say no. Is that was, the... was like, when she said no, I felt like I could say no. Which... It, it's weird. It's like, that's a bit of a... Isn't that a, a reach? Like, you're... Like, this film made you realise that you were allowed to be a lesbian? But... Yeah. And, like, from what I was... James Whale was not, like, a feminist. <laughs> I think it is a component of probably James Whale growing up and having some sort of outsider status that is projected in these films. But is Maybe. it necessarily about being homosexual... And I, I think with the old Dark House too, there's I think a lot of people were like, it was like all these like queer actors like coming together. Yeah. And I feel like it was probably just because he was in like, we, you know, like, like you were saying, it wasn't like, it was kind of just like a known secret in the 1930s. There are a lot of gay actors. Yeah. So it was probably just him and all of his friends making a movie together. I don't know if there was like a deeper. Um, no, I don't, I don't think either. I don't think, again, it's this, um, it's this this urge that people have to to read in stuff mm. um, when if you like I don't know maybe I'm I'm too limited in my thinking but I like to think about like what did the director and the filmmaker actually want from mm. this I don't I don't see any benefit of me making shit up <laughs> you but, know but I think like, I think this is something as well though because modern horror now always has to be elevated to, yeah. to basically to be a critically acclaimed film there needs to be like there needs to be a message there needs to be subtext that's relevant to yeah. contemporary society right yeah and i don't feel like that was the case until the last 10 years even less mm. and so i feel like like a lot of 90s horror films like they were made to be scary there was no subtext there was not like yeah it's like this film is about class despair no it was just about a monster that was killing people in an apartment complex it's yeah. not necessarily saying anything deeper than that and i feel like these films it literally was the studio where, like, we want something that's going to thrill audiences and that will scare them. Yeah. And, um, like, they, they were kind of... So the, I think the, the, the main thing that, like, clearly James Whale well is a very talented person. I think there is an interesting story to be told about this openly gay man mm. who made these sorts of things. But I think his real fucking talent was taking things were, which I think they were designed to be these, like, popcorn films and then because he was this very, so there's all this stuff in this autobiography. He, he grew up in like a working class uh, family, but he uh, very much wanted to be part of like, almost like the aristocracy. Like he had a very pretentious view of the world. And so I, I you can see that in these films that he was given these, like this crappy schlock. And he was like, I'm going to imbue that with German expression. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's clearly a, he, he, he artsied up what otherwise would have been trashy, pulpy, you know, particularly because like the science fiction-y things were associated with those like, with like magazines for kids yeah. and stuff. Um, and so like, that's his real talent. Um, and wouldn't it have been great if in this documentary series that they like appreciated the actual man and not like... Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of the things are really reaching. I think when they started talking about Hitchcock, 
think Hitchcock had overt homosexual themes in his yes. films. And you can definitely make reads on that because it's obvious that's what he was trying to do. And I will say on that, they I think they did make the great call. I can't remember which interviewer said it, but they did note the fact that like Hitchcock was fascinated by homosexuality, but mainly from the perspective that it was kind of like... Taboo. De- deviant. Yeah. Like, like we looked at rope yeah. and stuff. Like, like clearly that has homosexual themes. And yeah. It's based on real life. But, like, I think he was fascinated by, yeah, the, the, almost like the rebelliousness of it. Yeah. The underworlds of homosexuality. I mean, even Rebecca, it's kind of like a psychosexual lesbian kind yeah. of thriller, you know. It's yeah. Like, so he's kind of fascinated by that sort of... He wasn't a hashtag ally. He was more of a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe to an extent. I guess it's like... It was still some of the earliest, like, overt homosexual subtext that was probably on film. So in some ways, he was still bringing it to the forefront. I think because it was a provocateur. But was like, a adva- provocateur yeah. is going to be interested in, yeah. Was it advancing the gay movement or the queer movement? Probably not. No. But <laughs> was it in this one as well that we got that... that okay, this is the one touching part of this series, is um, Oz Perkins, yeah. who is a filmmaker who made Blackcoat's daughter. Yes. His father is Anthony Perkins. Yeah. And he told that really, really wonderful story about his father dying of AIDS and how, like, the family had to lie about and it. And say it was and, from a, a blood transfusion. Like, th- that to me was, like, a really touching, great moment just out of nowhere in this series. And then, like, there was that little segment and then but, it went on. But it was interesting, though, because he was also, also talking about the undertones in, like, interviews and media about Anthony Perkins, implying he was, like, effeminate or... And that kind of thing. Yeah. And how they kind of, even in his death, had to kind of plug that and be like, he was a devoted husband to a wife. And, yeah. You know. And like, and I, I, yeah, I thought that was a fair, so no, I don't, I don't hate, I've been ranting about these, these couple of things that just particularly pissed me off. Like there are some good-ish bits. I think if like a better person in charge of this mm. series, um, was it like person was in charge, there would probably be. It could be that there are, because I'm assuming they just do full interviews with everyone, yeah. right? There's probably a good film in there. If you just went back to the, the, sorry, good series in there, where you go back to the interviews and like actually tease out the interesting stuff. Well, I just think I'm more <coughs> interested to see if as the series progresses, we don't know how many episodes it has. I think I'm it's gonna... only four. Okay. So, uh, so we haven't been able to see the fourth episode. Yeah. The third episode, I actually have no comments on. It's about, it's about werewolves mostly, um, which again, I think werewolves have always symbolized sexuality. Mm. So I don't think anyone's reading anything that into that. Um, also modern, like they were referencing like ginger snaps and stuff. Yeah. Like clearly that's on purpose. Yeah. Well, that's the last thing. I think this, this series probably would bode better if they looked at things that were a bit more contemporary and actually unpacked things like ginger snaps. So there's clear intended yeah. meaning that's kind of informed by like decades of cinema and social evolution, whereas yeah. I feel like the fact that it focuses primarily on the 1920s to 1940s and it's very speculative, um, I guess that's what's a bit frustrating about it. And I think it's it's the way it's, it's just it's presented too factual when it should just be more casual. Like, do, do you know what? Like, also just asking the right interviewee the right question. So, like Alaska Thunderfuck, who I'm not, you know. I vaguely know who she is in terms of a drag queen, but if you asked her about like Ed Wood and like those kind of B horror films, clearly her look is entirely based off of those movies. Yeah. 
Like, she would probably have really good perspectives on that. Mm. I don't know why we're asking her about Mary Shelley. I mean, I did learn from Alaska Thunderfuck that allegedly Mary Shelley lost her virginity on her dad, her mum's gravestone? Or was it her dad's gra- Her mum's gravestone. Oh, that sounds like completely apocryphal. I don't uh, know if that's true. Well, that was in the documentary. I was like, oh, that's an interesting, <laughs> that's a nice intergenerational yeah, yeah, coming yeah. of age, so to speak, in many senses. The but comment yeah. about her being a hag who loved her gaze just got me. That was so bad. Yeah, I, I, I think once again, if I had it just been like, there's a chance that like, well, like, wouldn't that have been funny if? I think it's just because everything is spoken as fact. It's just like you, and it's just like, we don't know. But like, again, maybe I'm being too academic about it, but like, so Mary Shell was, was part of the um, romanticist movement, movement. Okay. So romanticism was like in a rebellion to enlightenment. You can do a direct line from the romanticism movement to gay liberation movements. Mm. Cause they were, they were tied together. They were all about rebelling against this, like sexual, like, like sexual and monogamy norms. Yeah. yeah. Or, or like, like nudism and like, like th- there is definitely a connection intellectually between the two, but they don't want to do that. They want to do this simple, like she had the same experience as me way of doing it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess it's just to create a more succinct, like, narrative in a documentary, but yeah, it comes across a bit, like, presumptuous and know-it-all, but, like, not in an authentic or believable way. I wanted to finish off talking about, and finishing off our last episode, um, by just talking about all the movies that they didn't cover that they could have covered because they were covered by the Sinister Sissies podcast. That's true. Where was cruising? Well, okay, yeah. So, okay, some of these clearly were a bit too obscure. So, like, Otto or Up With Dead People, the Bruce LaBruce film. Although, having Bruce LaBruce as an interviewee would have made sense. He's, like, one of the, like, most well-known gay horror filmmakers. Uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, no mention. Yeah, that was weird because that's, like, and that's an interesting one because remember how the director was, like, I never intended for that film to be gay. And I think yeah. now he's changed his tune, right? But like Butcher Bag and Nightmare Maker. Yep. Slash Night Warning, whatever title. Yeah, Sleepaway Camp. There are so many films that just like. Sleepaway Camp. Maybe Sleepaway Camp's too problematic. What's I the, mean, yeah, Kenneth but, Anger. The films of Kenneth Anger maybe is maybe too artsy. Maybe that's too obscure. But like Sleep, it doesn't, if something's problematic though, it can be unpacked really well. Yeah. So why like. But I guess this, this documentary series was meant to be covering the origins of horror. I guess that's. That's, but then they keep showing contemporary clips. So it was just all a bit confusing. I would have trust these sets of interviewees to have really good opinions on Dante's Cove. That's true. <laughs> and, oh, I have all these flashbacks down to films that we've done. Wait, should, we, should we read them all? Okay, these, these are the films that we've done. Oh, I can't do the serial killers as well. But like, okay. Uh, when did you come in? Hellbent was the first film that we did together, Sam. I believe so, yeah. Uh, Butcher Baker Nightmare Waker. Sleepaway Camp. Remember we did a audio commentary for the Patreon for the, the sequel? I feel like that probably wasn't right, and I'm never going to listen to that. Uh, um, Invocation of My Demon Brother. Um, Knife Plus Heart. Well, I actually watched Invocation of My Demon Brother, I think, when I was high on acid. I mean... The Kenneth Anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't. No, I didn't. Uh, the Fourth Man. Spiral, which was that... Yeah, spiral you hated. That was a bit of a run. Fear No Evil, that was kind of fun. Oh, and I watched, I think I watched that on Halloween one year. Irreversible, classic. Uh, in a Glass Cage, that disturbing. Film, yeah, that's, I'm that's a, that's a, a Dharma. I'm yeah. getting a bad taste in my mouth just thinking about that film. Um, good film, though. Good film. Uh, Stranger by the Lake, Killer Condom, 
Midnight Kiss. Oh, that was the terrible fucking. Um, what? What? That was part of that series. Hulu? No, yeah, the, it was the Hulu series. <coughs> every month they had a different horror film that was themed after an event that month. That month was New Year's. The Covenant, which you did by yourself. Uh, Muscle, which was that Japanese film, which mm-hmm. like it stood up. Uh, oh, this is where we had Luke on. We did yeah. Gayracula. Dante's Cove. We had Luke on for that as well. Uh, King Cobra. My friend Dharma. Which was sort of like referenced a little bit in, not referenced, but we saw some glimmers of the events of My Friend Dharma in the in the Dharma series. They almost did like a little mini version. Yeah. Which was interesting. Well, they even had him got, yeah, going into the yearbook photos. They did him stuff. spazzing out. Yeah. yeah. That's our previous episode. So that's yeah. <laughs> you can tell we're doing this back to back. Cut Snake and Down River. Look, I wouldn't expect the latter two to be like mentioned in this documentary, but yeah, we've covered a lot of stuff over the years. I'm proud of what I've done, and I'm so happy to have you have had you on for the last couple of years. Well, I'm happy to. Sissies. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, yeah, I was happy to have been here because it's about to be a past tense. But it is. We've covered many a killer and many a homoerotic horror. Uh, so Sam will not be gone forever. He will be continuing with his own podcast. Stay tuned on our socials. Is that the best way? I get, I will definitely direct people via those into what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, but but yeah, I just want to thank everyone, especially during the Halloween months and past years. You know, we've had so many good talks about film and serial killers and just fun. like the feedback and you know those few people that you know always send us messages. Some of the creepy ones. Well, I'm thanking anyone, everyone <laughs> because. You've left an impression, whether whether it be mildly unsettling or, you know, heartwarming. It's still been, you know... It's good to know that people are listening. It's still been an iconic speck on the Sinister map. Well, why don't I, for the very last time... I've never seen Jared upset before. He actually looks emotional. <laughs> for the very last time, uh, you can, well, follow us at Sinister Sissies to see what Sam is up to next, or at... Sinister underscore sissies on Insta. On our Instagram. Uh, for the very last time, though, we're going to do it together? Uh, well, I just want to say a big thank you to you as well, Jared. Oh, thank you! Yeah. Oh, I'm hug. glad that I've got a, you know, a, sinister, a sinister comrade from this. I still remember after the first time we met, and now here we are. Yeah. Because we only, met, we only met because of the podcast, Jared. It, it was like I a job interview. Yeah. So here I am on the couch of my boss, drunk. Like, I don't know where we're going. This is... Okay. I'm going to stop he's, talking he's gonna, he's Look, move on. As, as per usual I put my foot in my mouth and make some like dark connotation that isn't there I'm very happily on the couch with Jared let's end his it hands together. on my leg let's end it together okay until next time though stay, stay sinister, sinister.